Hello and welcome along again to the Northern Agenda podcast, your weekly look at what's making waves in politics in the towns, cities, suburbs and villages of the north of England. I'm Rob Parsons, a journalist based in Leeds who follows the ups and downs of regional politics in the north and I try and make sense of it every day with an email newsletter called the Northern Agenda. This podcast is my once a week chance to take a deeper look at some of the big issues in the north and speak to people in the know for their insights and expertise. And if you like the podcast, why not leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts as it helps us to reach more people. So I think this week we've got two very fascinating but very different guests uh, on the podcast. Coming up in a few minutes, I'll be quizzing a senior official at the North's biggest bus operator about why West Yorkshire should not go down the route of Andy Burnham and Greater Manchester by taking local services under public control. Private bus firms are advocating an alternative approach called the Enhanced Partnership Plus, which they say will deliver the same benefits as franchising, but faster and cheaper. So listen out, I will be asking Kaylee Ingham, Commercial Director of First Bus, how that would work. But my first guest is a Northern politician who's packed a huge amount into her short career so far since being elected in Bishop Auckland in County Durham as an MP in 2019 while still in her 20s. Jenna Davison was until recently a levelling up minister and this summer stepped back because of her battle with migraines. But she's got a lot of really interesting thoughts, I think, about the challenges she faced in government, what levelling up can and can't do for communities like hers and also about what she is doing to try and get tougher sentences for people who kill with one punch. That is something that she knows all about uh, as someone who lost her father in just this way when she was a teenager growing up in Sheffield. So it's a really uh, worthwhile interview, I think. So without further ado, let's hear it now. Jenna Davison, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Thank you, Rob. I'm very well. How are you? Very good. Yeah, very good. Thank you. Um, so I turned on my TV the other night and lo and behold, there you were on my on my screen next to Paul Merton on Have I Got News For You? I have to say, I thought you, you, you held your own against in quite esteemed company, but I imagine it's quite a daunting proposition going in there as a politician, maybe particularly a Conservative politician at a time when the Conservative Party is not overwhelmingly popular I mean what what did you make of that whole that whole experience it was um it was quite an experience I mean I've done quite a bit of media over the years I remember question time being very nervous for that one but when I did have I got news for you I think it's the most nervous I've ever been for anything work related which says a lot um just because it's such an iconic show it's been going for decades I think it's been going since just before I was born actually if I've got the years right which is crazy and it's kind of an institution in the kind of political and current affairs world um it was amazing though I I was you know obviously conscious that uh anytime you are a politician you're going to get a pretty rough ride on a show like that but particularly a politician who is a part of the party that's actually in power um naturally it's going to be uh yeah, going to be tough. But actually, I kind of went in fully prepared for battle and felt I actually got off quite lightly in a way, which I certainly wasn't complaining about. Yeah, I wouldn't say you got hammered by uh, by, by anyone. And, and you had some jokes as well, uh, <laughs> which I thought was quite impressive. Quite a lot of politicians go on there and like they just try and get away with saying as little as possible. But you actually tried to try. You, you actually uh, you, you were pretty funny, I thought. 
Thank you. Well, if you ask my mum or anyone who knows me well, I've never been one to kind of hold my words back or not say much. So uh, I don't think that came as a surprise. But it's that weird thing where it's a show you're on with comedians. And I was on with, you know, a satirist and two comedians. And I'm sitting there thinking, I don't want to like try and be funny because I will fail miserably compared to the other guys who are on here. But I'm just going to kind of try and be me. And I think it ish works out. I'm guessing TV appearances are maybe something you're going to be able to do a little bit more of since you stepped down as a minister in Michael Gove's levelling up department a few weeks ago because of your ongoing battle with migraines. I think, I mean, for a lot of people, that was quite a surprising announcement. Maybe they didn't know what you'd been going through. Um, but a few weeks on, now the dust has settled. Do you, do you feel like it was the right thing to do for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely the right thing to do. I mean, Anyone who's kind of battled any chronic condition will know how how kind of much it eats into your life. Um, and anyone who's battled chronic migraine will know that the unpredictability of it is really difficult. Um, and I think, you know, doing a really high pressure job, but particularly, you know, a, a job where there are certain responsibilities that regardless of kind of how sick you are, you kind of can't get out of. If I'm the minister due to take a bill through the commons, then, you know, pending literally being unconscious, you've kind of got to be there to do it. Um and there were occasions where I was literally, you know, standing at the dispatch box, barely able to see because of kind of visual aura and blurriness, trying to read off the sheet and, and do the right thing and hold my own with questions and interventions and things. And, you know, it's the levelling up job and that entire kind of social mobility agenda matters to me so much. And I know it'll matter to a lot of people who are listening to this, um, that partly of course, there was the element whereby I wanted to sort out my own health, but that was actually a really small part of the decision making. It's more that this job, this agenda needs someone kind of running it who can give 100% energy 24-7. And much as I tried and I gave as much as I had, the fact my tank was half empty a lot of the time meant that I didn't feel I was doing that job justice. Um, so I think it absolutely was the right decision. And obviously handed over to, to Jacob. I didn't I didn't know who would get the job following me, but really pleased it was Jacob. He's great. He's, you know, fully red wall, proper working class lad. He's, I, I remember when he first got elected, his picture was him in his hard hat from work on his official parliamentary pass. And I think he really, he really gets it. He really gets, one, how important the whole levelling up agenda is. Um, and two, he kind of gets the common sense approach it needs and kind of how to get it done. So, you know, very much supporting him in that role. But yeah, me me standing down regrettably was the right decision. So looking back on your time as a minister, obviously you were involved with some government decisions that had really big implications for the North, things like the levelling up fund, devolution deals. I mean, are there any things particular as a minister you're particularly proud of? Or maybe you could also say what the most sort of frustrating or challenging bit of, of, that, of that role was. Well, I'll answer the second bit first. And I think a lot of ministers would probably relate to this is you go into a job that you're really passionate about and you go in with all these great ideas and you kind of want it done now so I remember when I first took on the role um, in September last year we were talking about leveling up fund round three and I said right I want to get the announcement in the next few weeks let's do it and they were saying well we've still got to assess them we need to do this we need to do that and you know the civil servants were worked so hard on this I had a great team behind me I went in with so much gusto, vim and vigor, like it all must be done now. And I need these 10 things done, you know, in four hours, blah, 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 blah. You go in with the energy and just recognizing that there's so much process that has to sit behind that. So much legal process, of course, um, subsidy control, all of that sort of stuff that probably wasn't high up my agenda as a backbencher. But as a minister, you soon realize that there's kind of a lot more to these decisions. So I think 
one of the biggest challenges is kind of the one, the speed at which you can actually get stuff done in terms of that, that kind of broader decision making um, linked to that, the speed at which the projects that you can approve through things like leveling up fund actually get done because procurement takes a long time, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, but actually kind of, um, yeah, it just, just the capacity as well. You know, you could go in with 20 ideas and naively believe that there is this enormous team to support you. And there is a huge team to support you. But if you want those 20 ideas done well, there is not the capacity to get them all done right at the immediate time. So I think, um, yeah, that, that was kind of the source of a lot of my frustration. I mean, that, that levelling up decision eventually got delayed right up through to, um, I can't remember if it was January or February, um, with me in September saying, let's do it now, let's do it now, let's do it now. Um, so that was that that was kind of a cause of a lot of frustration, was just born out of a good thing, born out of enthusiasm and a kind of a real desire to just get stuff done get really quickly. Um, in terms of kind of achievements, I mean, it's a funny one because I'm the sort of person and personality where you kind of achieve a thing and then instantly my brain has moved on to the next thing, kind of how do we get the next thing done? Um, but I'll, I'll try and look back. I mean, on devolution, one of the bits that I'm really proud of is managing to broker the um, deeper devolution deals, the trailblazer deals with West Midlands and Greater Manchester, which was no mean feat. I mean, everyone right across party across industry talk about how devolution is really important you know bringing decision making and spending power back to local communities is really important um but when it comes to kind of trying to get those things through government departments and getting um departments to kind of release a bit of control over these areas and over these funds it, it was really difficult there was a lot of discussions going on behind the scenes with um, myself and ministers in other departments having sort of bilaterals me saying well, if you just give us this bit, then we're hoping it'll do this and kind of have this huge kind of effect. But naturally, when you have had control as, as a minister in, say, plucking one out of the air transport or whatever, if you've had control over a particular slice and you can see I put this in and this comes out from that particular slice, then giving that up on a hope that there will be bigger rewards locally without any guarantee that will be the case is clearly difficult. So I can understand it. But I can. I think the the bit I'm proud of is just the the kind of perseverance and the fact that um, myself, kind of politically, but also the amazing team in DLUC who are working on this, kind of behind the scenes at getting into that nitty gritty detail, they were fantastic. And I do think that that is really the start of a really exciting move towards more local devolution. And it's funny you, you talk about devolution kind of out there in the real world, and people say, "Oh, what do we want more politicians for?" or whatever. But it's, it's because it's about local control, isn't it? It's about local people kind of knowing better what's right for them and being able to give them the powers to actually do stuff and the money to actually do stuff is so crucial. And so I'm really hoping that as we kind of move forward and I guess sort of prove the concept, prove that um, devolving those powers, devolving those funds is working and is kind of reaping really big rewards, then I hope we'll be able to roll that out even more across the country and be even more ambitious about what we are willing to sort of give back locally in terms of powers. You came into Parliament in 2019 riding that that wave of enthusiasm for Boris Johnson in the the north of England. There were so many places like yours, Bishop Auckland in County Durham, which voted Conservative for the first time on the back of promises that they were going to be levelled up. Now, since then, it's probably not been the, the four years that anyone predicted. We've had three prime ministers, a pandemic, cost of living crisis. It feels to me like we don't, obviously you've just been talking about levelling up, but generally in politics, 
we're not talking about levelling up as often as we used to when Boris Johnson was Prime Minister. I mean, do you think, if when you go back to Bishop Auckland, um, are communities there going to feel levelled up by the time the next election comes around, do you think? It'll depend a bit on on the community. I mean, when I think about Bishop Auckland and I think about the kind of the headlines of, of kind of what has kind of been given to the constituency that it wasn't getting before, um, it's upwards of sort of £70 million of new kind of capital funding, which is huge, absolutely huge, um, going into Bishop Auckland town and the surrounds. The problem is, and it sort of goes back to one of the answers I was giving earlier in terms of the ministerial role, is just how long it takes to actually get projects off the ground. So it's all very well me saying literally back in, in sort of um, 2020, this is great. We've had 20 million quid from the high streets fund. It's going to change the high street. People now are coming to me saying, well, it's 2023. Everything looks the same. Like what's what's going on? Um, those things are still going to happen. And actually spades are starting to go in the ground now. And it's really exciting. And I, I do think that in kind of 10 years time, when people look back at the before and after of Bishop Auckland town centre in particular, they will see a huge difference. Um, whether that will happen in time for the general election, I mean, if you know when it's coming, Rob, if you could give me a heads up, that that would be handy. Um, I think I think signs of spades in the ground is a good thing, for sure. But the problem with levelling up is, well, the problem and, and the kind of good thing about it really is that it has to be a really holistic thing. So funds like the High Streets Fund, the levelling up fund are a part of that. And it's really important seeing your town centre looking better, seeing better facilities there, seeing, you know, more business opportunities there. But it's got to be about more than that. If we're going to do this properly, it has to go to the very fundamentals of our society. And that's why I think that levelling up white paper that was published a couple of years ago is so important because it talks about education. It talks about transport connectivity. It talks about broadband and and sort of digital connectivity. Um, It talks about health. It, It goes into kind of every aspect of one's life that we really do need to to level up and improve for people who are some of the most deprived. And the fact of the matter is, like, in, in order to really revolutionise and, and level up properly, it is going to take decades. And it is going to take more than a few billion quid here and there. It's going to take a whole scale kind of shift in government thinking. And I think there have been some positive steps towards that. Things like the, the kind of levelling up interministerial group that means that ministers from every department are meeting up to talk about well, the stuff that you're doing in your department, how can we tie that into levelling up and look at that through a levelling up lens? So it is it is happening, but I still think we need to be bigger and bolder. Um, one of the kind of most memorable things that I sort of did as a minister or what the most memorable experiences I had was like I did a, a kind of fact-finding trip to Germany um, and travelled all around to really look at how post-reunification they went about this journey themselves because the economic differences between the east and west germany were huge and they decided to be really bold really radical and it has taken an eye-watering amount of money and it literally has taken decades but really now looking at east germany they are starting to reap the rewards of that um that real generational investment and generational focus on this as an agenda and I really hope that, you know, whatever happens after the election, we do start to think about levelling up in terms like that and really, really put our money and all of our emphasis where our mouths are. On the subject of uh, you know promises that were made in 2019 and investing in places like Bishop Auckland, I wanted to ask you about, uh, it's quite a local, local one, your local hospital in Bishop Auckland, the A&E was closed a few years ago, I think this is right. And when you were elected or when you were campaigning to be elected, you made it, made it a big part of your pitch 
that you were going to campaign for it to be reopened so patients didn't have to travel to Darlington or Durham. Now, I read this summer that despite everyone's efforts, progress on this campaign has stalled and people are suggesting there's no chance of the A&E reopening and even suggesting that you know your campaign was a bit of a a, a stunt and actually it was never going to work i mean what what do you say to that do you still hold out hope that that a and e could be reopened in bishop auckland at some point i think i think it's a really important campaign i mean i wouldn't have kind of campaigned on that as one of my core pledges if i didn't think it was needed and if i didn't think it was possible and before i even kind of put it on a leaflet for the first time i did speak to some guys in government and some guys at sort of party headquarters and say can I can I put this? If, if I put this, is there a way I'm going to be able to achieve this? Because I I'm never one to make a promise that I can't keep, and it's why I deliberately said in any media I did on it, any kind of writing I put out, I'm going to campaign to do this. I never said I'm going to bring back the A and E because I don't like that sort of bold promises when you know that there's a, a, a chance that it might not happen. Um, but I did. I mean, right from the outset, as a candidate, I was speaking to the then health secretary, Matt Hancock. I raised it in the chamber God knows how many times straight away. Um, I had meetings with the trust very early on. The The difficulty came that obviously four months after getting elected, um, the dreaded COVID pandemic hit. And one thing that I didn't want to do at a time when the NHS was facing so much uncertainty, so much pressure um, and so much emotional turmoil for the staff there was the the annoying MP on the side who's saying, yes, I know you're going through all that horrible stuff, but by the way, can we have the A&E back? Because to me, that felt wrong. It felt churlish and it felt like I would be doing that purely to kind of prove a point and get screenshots to tell guys I'm campaigning on it. To me, that didn't feel right. So um, I did sort of sit on it for a while, which in hindsight, perhaps I shouldn't have done. But similarly, to me, it just it just felt wrong. On an emotional level, it felt wrong. Um, so once once things had settled down, once um, the pandemic, I don't want to say the pandemic was over, but once things had, had kind of calmed down, the NHS was starting to function more as normal, that's when I saw, started to really take it up again. And I think the difficulty with health and the way in which health is structured now is a lot of these sort of decisions, um, rightly or wrongly, are not political decisions. They're decisions now for the local health trusts or the integrated care boards. Um, and in County Durham in particular, there is a move more towards centralisation of services. And so it was quite clear from the outset that the trust's belief was that the hospital uh, in Bishop should be for kind of uh, for kind of elective surgeries, et cetera, et cetera. It felt to me like right from the get go, before I'd even got in and asked the question, they'd already made the decision that that was never going back. Um, so now I'm kind of waiting until we have a, a new Conservative candidate in place so that I can kind of tell them what I know and hope that they will continue the mantle and really continue to push for this campaign. Because County Durham is a big place. Um, and the reality of A&Es being centralised is that the people living in the really kind of um, out there rural parts of the county, uh, if there is an emergency, suddenly it's not a 15 minute drive anymore. Suddenly it's a 45 minute drive, an hour drive especially in the winter if the roads are treacherous, to try and get to that accident and emergency, which literally can mean life or death. Um, so I do think it's a really important campaign still. And obviously, we'll still do whatever I can to make it happen. Um, uh, but really disappointed that I haven't been able to make, make more progress there, if I'm honest. Just going out back out wider uh, again, you mentioned you know, that the, the, whoever's going to be the candidate in Bishop Auckland for the next election. I'm, I'm Obviously, you're, you're not standing uh, yourself. You're going to step away from frontline politics. But I'm interested in your view of where the Conservatives are at the moment under Vichy Sunak. I've been reading about a few 
to the northern so-called Red Wall MPs who aren't particularly happy with the way uh, the Conservatives are being led at the moment. I know stopping the boats is a big issue for a lot of northern constituencies and obviously the Veranda policy is now seemingly in uh, in disarray. He's brought back David Cameron, who I think a lot of people up here will remember as campaigning against Brexit and being the architect of austerity. Isn't that going to be quite a hard sell for yourself or whoever the candidate is in Bishop Auckland when the next election comes? I mean, I'm not going to kind of sit here and lie and say that everything's rosy because it isn't and politically everything is not rosy. Um, But I I guess the thing that I say, and maybe it's my kind of naive optimism I was talking about earlier, is that, you know, if people say a week is a long time in politics, and it is, we could have a year, I'm going to estimate somewhere between sort of six months and a year before that election comes around. So much can change in that time. Fortunes can be changed very quickly. And I think back to 2019 when you know, Theresa May was in power. And I think at one point in a national poll for the European elections, we hit 9% as a party in the national polls. And then you flash forward less than a year, and suddenly it's an 80 seat majority um, returned. So I I don't think all hope is lost. I really don't. Um, but it goes back to keeping promises, doesn't it? It goes back to if you're going to make a promise, you've got to do all you can to keep it. Now, Rishi has made five core pledges, um, and we saw some pretty good news yesterday on the inflation pledge, which is, you know, that inflation has come down by more than a half. It's not the end of the road economically, of course it isn't, there's still a lot more to do, but I think it, it's it's indicative of progress. Um, it's, I think it's always going to be difficult when you are a government that has been in power for the length of time we have, and I mean, it's, it's 13 years now, that, that's pretty significant. There are going to be a lot of things to criticise over that time. And people will. We've just got to continue to push on the agendas that we know matter to people. So the levelling up agenda for one, doing everything we can to make sure that the projects that have been promised through that get delivered. So I, th- I think the pound in people's pocket is always a really, really important factor when people are determining how they're going to vote. Um, you know, we, we call it cost of living now, but it's been called many different things over the years. And ultimately, if people are feeling decently off, if people are feeling better off, or conversely, if people are feeling a lot worse off, um, when they're going into that ballot box, that's going to be really significant. So I think, you know, um, inflation, really important that we've gotten that down by half. We need to keep going and get that back down to the kind of key target figure of 2%. Um, but making sure that people have got cash in their pockets, and I hate I hate to sound like I'm banging on, but through tax cuts as well, I think it's really important, particularly for businesses. I mean, if businesses are doing well, they're going to be able to pay their staff better. People have got more pounds in their pockets and the whole kind of, the whole kind of cycle helps the economy, helps people feel better off. So I'm hoping that in the autumn statement, we'll see some pretty good stuff, um, particularly when it comes to business taxation. So I've got my fingers crossed. Um, and a group of us from uh, the Northeast were actually in with the Chancellor. Um, I think, I can't remember if it was yesterday or two days ago, to kind of make our pitches both on a local level in terms of local projects we'd want to see delivered and local things we'd want to see get done, um, but also that kind of wider national policy as well. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't know what that election is going to hold. But I think there's a lot of people who are writing off Rishi and writing off the Conservatives when it is far too early to do that. So much can change. And I can absolutely still see a path to Rishi winning and staying in power. Well, that is uh, interesting. We will see uh, see how that uh, unfolds. So just to turn to you, you know, what the future holds for you now that you're no, no longer a minister. I'm guessing now that you're a backbench MP, you're able to put more into your campaign on this very emotive uh, issue of one-punch killings, which of course was uh, prompted by the tragic death of your father, uh, killed by a single punch on a night out when you were just a teenager. Um, Tell me where things are with uh, the one-punch 
campaign at the moment? What would you like to see happen before you bow out as an MP and even beyond that? There's a couple of things. Um, And this isn't just me talking as an individual. This is me having spoken to dozens now of families who've lost loved ones through these horrible assaults. Um, A few key things. One is improvements when it comes to victim support, because what we found is that while some people, and and I must say my family got great support from our local police and, and whatnot, it's quite patchy and it's quite varied the levels of support people had. And I think it's one of the areas that when people think about these tragedies isn't necessarily focused on. But actually, if you think about it as, as you know, on, on this basis, you're going about your life, everything's normal, everything's dandy, and then suddenly, bang, a loved one is killed. And not only are you going through the grief and the uncertainty of kind of not knowing what that means. I remember my mum financially, that was a big consideration because dad was the main breadwinner. So that was a bit a big stress for her. So you're going through that emotional side anyway, but suddenly you also have to deal with courts. And if you've never been to court before, and certainly if you've never kind of witnessed a, a manslaughter trial or whatever, that is a really daunting thing, particularly if you're given witness statements, if you witnessed it yourself, having to actually, you know, say that, having to sit there, having to see the person who may or may not have killed your loved one in court that's a whole other thing so having decent victim support in place to make sure that there's the kind of emotional support sure but support in terms of having certainty of what is to come so just being talked through how the court process will work perhaps having someone there with you um be it a family liaison officer or otherwise just to make sure that you are supported you know what's going on you know that process is being followed properly because I wouldn't have had a clue. Genuinely, if things hadn't been done properly, I mean, I was 14, 13, 14 at the time, I wouldn't have known if proper processes were being followed. So having that that support, I think, is really important and making sure that is standardised. And what I'd kind of also like to see um, is is a kind of single point of contact for One Punch um, families, victims' families, because it's quite niche. There are a lot more of these cases than you would like and that you would hope, and so many communities have been rocked by them but it's still quite quite a niche thing. And that means that the, the kind of um, court process is still quite niche and quite complicated. So having a single point of contact, be that through, um, through policing authorities or otherwise, that families can go to for advice, I think would be a really beneficial thing. So that, 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 that's the kind of victim side. Um, but obviously it goes without saying that sentencing is clearly a consideration too. Um, and I actually spoke in the House Commons Chamber yesterday on this very point, um, because... Uh, there was a review into sentencing done in uh, commissioned in 2014. And basically they found that in, in the seven years prior to the consultation actually being launched, the average sentence was three years and I think 10 months uh, taking a life through a single punch. Um, and for the families of victims who have gone through that, it kind of feels like a kick in the teeth. Um, this is a life that's been taken. And as, as a family member of someone who's been killed through this, you basically go through a life sentence yourself of the emotional turmoil. So seeing better sentencing. So this review happened and they did change some of the guidelines and and the guidance in particular um, for prosecutors. But as it stands right now, the absolute minimum sentence someone could get for taking a life through a single punch is still 12 months. And to me, that does not seem right. It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem just. And certainly to the families that I've spoken to, they are baffled, astonished and quite angry that that's the case. So we do want to see um, an improvement in sentencing. So the reason that I spoke in the chamber yesterday, it was um, a debate around the King's speech. So that's the government's legislative agenda for the next year or so. And one of the bills that's coming through that is a new sentencing bill. 
um, which the, the Justice Secretary um, kind of outlined. Now, that's looking at um, kind of either increasing sentencing or making sure that those who are convicted of the most serious crimes spend more of their sentence behind bars. So I have asked for a meeting and indeed it's been agreed I can have a meeting with the Justice Minister to discuss how we can hopefully put in place a specific minimum sentence for single punch assault perpetrators. Um, so I'm hoping to make some progress on that. But as I say, the meeting was literally only agreed to yesterday, so it's a bit early to tell. But seeing an improvement there, I think, um, would be a really good thing and something that would kind of, it's going to sound really corny, but kind of make my kind of journey to this point to Parliament really worthwhile, given that that's really what catalyzed kind of my journey here. Um, so that and also raising awareness, raising awareness is always something that I'm going to keep doing, be it in Parliament or elsewhere, because, you know, if it stops one person from raising their uh, their fists on a night out and saves one life, then it makes it all worthwhile. Yeah. And I'm sure, like you say, this is something you'll be uh, dedicating yourself to after you leave Parliament. But I was going to just as a final question, I was going to ask you uh, about your plans post Westminster politics. Obviously, you'll be in your early 30s when you leave Parliament with a CV that says, not only a member of parliament, but also minister of state for levelling up, which is a pretty decent set of qualifications to uh, go out looking for work. I mean, have you, have you got any idea what kind of things you'd like to do uh, when, when, you, when you're no longer an MP? The problem, Rob, is I've got too many ideas of things I'd like to do um, and really need to narrow that down and, and figure it out. Um, I've been thinking about it for a while. I, I don't know what I'm going to do is the honest answer. Um, I'm starting to, to kind of think about having conversations. I mean, the, there are a lot of causes I'm really passionate about. So the one punch side of things, I will always, always continue to, to work on. But that'll probably be more as a, on a kind of voluntary basis, I, I assume, than anything else. But there are other causes I really care about. I mean, social mobility always will always, always, always be very high up on my agenda, as well as... Um, kind of women's empowerment as well. And, and I don't mean kind of feminism, sisterhood kind of stuff. I mean, genuinely, how do we encourage more girls to go into great careers to have the confidence to put themselves forward, be that in science, technology, politics, whatever it might be. So anything I can do through that, I'm, I'm wondering about kind of approaching some, some sort of charities and seeing if there's anything that I can do there. And, you know, it, it's been no secret that I'm very passionate about LGBT rights as well. Um, so anything I can do on that to try and kind of further um, LGBT rights and, and kind of further that kind of sense of belonging that a lot of people in the LGBT community don't feel, um, that would be good. So those things, I don't know, maybe write some stuff. As a, as a kid, I always wanted to be an author and I've literally got half a novel sitting on a computer somewhere that I would really like to finish one day. Um, but I don't know. I don't know what the future is going to hold, but um, I'm kind of excited to find out. Absolutely. Well, uh, Deanna Davison, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Regular listeners to this podcast will be very familiar with what's happening in Greater Manchester, where Mayor Andy Burnham has taken the region's bus services under public control in a so-called franchising model. Where I live in West Yorkshire, Mayor Tracy Brabin is slowly following Andy Burnham down the same path in a move supporters say will finally reverse decades of declining bus services. But as she opens a public consultation on the future of local buses, the Labour Mayor of West Yorkshire is being presented with an alternative and perhaps less dramatic uh, alternative by private bus operators who would 
lose control of ticket prices and routes under the franchising model. The Best for West Yorkshire campaign sets out the case for what is known as an Enhanced Partnership Plus or EP Plus, which operators are confident will deliver benefits for customers, including accelerating public control without the burden and financial risk of a franchise model. But how will it work and will it be any better for hard-pressed passengers than the current system or a franchising system? To help us find out, I'm very pleased to be joined by Kaylee Ingham, Commercial Director of First Bus, the biggest operator in our region. Kaylee, it's nice to have you on. Thank you. Thanks for taking the time today, Rob. I really appreciate it. No, no worries at all. So maybe you can just explain what is EP Plus and, and why is it is this potentially the way to go in your in your view? Yeah, absolutely. No problem. So the Enhanced Partnership Plus, a very, very catchy title that you've already shared with the listeners. Um, we're actually really proud of, of this as, as, an, as a multi-operator group. So, so I, along with my other operator colleagues in West Yorkshire, have designed a proposal that we believe will bring all the benefits of bus reform, which, which we agree are needed, um, that, they, that they will be able to be brought to the passengers and the customers of West Yorkshire quicker and with more value for money in terms of that investment that, than the alternative that is being proposed. So as I've mentioned, we agree that, that reform is needed. We, we are aligned with the mayor on that point. There's absolutely loads more that can be done. And the partnership that has already been in place has delivered many benefits, but we believe we can stretch that further. So the Enhanced Partnership Plus leans upon five pillars to address the bus reform objectives that the mayor has outlined. Those five pillars cover decarbonisation, so that's about making the buses greener. It covers customer service, so, so that is looking after our customers every step of their journey and ensuring that customers know how they can find the bus that they need, get onto that bus quickly and have us look after them throughout their bus journey and afterwards too. It's about how we can make ticketing much more simpler for the customer. It's about working together with the combined authority to ensure that we give control to the mayor and to the combined authority over the bus network. And it's ensuring that bus priority is really given the priority that it needs. So those are the five pillars of the Enhanced Partnership Plus. As I've mentioned, it can be implemented really quickly. We can start the implementation as soon as spring 2024 to ensure that some of these benefits can be brought even within the same year, as soon as the close of next year, we can be bringing these benefits to, to the customers of West Yorkshire. So just for listeners to understand exactly what the difference is between this and the franchising model that is already starting to be put in place in Greater Manchester, my understanding is that under franchising, essentially the Greater Manchester Mail Authority is in control of routes and fares and it basically draws up contracts with operators to run the service but ultimately it is the public authority the taxpayer funded authority that decides and the 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 operators whether it's first or whoever they uh, have to go along with what is decided by the GMCA and an enhanced partnership plus is is not that is it, it, it how how will it be different in in that respect that's right. So the way that you describe franchising there is correct. It, a franchising situation um, is one whereby the, the, the authority puts out contracts to be bidded for by the operators. When an operator then wins the contract, they operate that contract for a period of time um, under the specification that the authority dictates. 
Um, what's different about the Enhanced Partnership Plus and actually what's different about how we work today is that operators today are able to choose in conjunction with the combined authority what routes should be operated so that's about working with the authority to understand where the pockets of demand are but also leaning upon the expertise that resides within the operators to ensure that the, the pockets of demand within the network can be well served and that the routes that that need further support can be supported so there isn't that that contract in place within an enhanced partnership plus model um, that would exist under franchising between the authority and the operator. In the Enhanced Partnership Plus model, operators run their businesses um, commercially and more standalone as such than within a franchising situation. As you said, the, the current system is is not working uh, for a lot of passengers. Uh, I think most people agree with that. I see stories across you know, West Yorkshire, the whole of the north of England about vital services that are lifelines for a lot of people being axed by, by the first or other operators or the taxpayer having to step in to fund them when they're no longer commercially commercially viable. We know how franchising will fix will fix that problem. How can we be sure that EP plus will fix those problems inherent within the current system like franchising hopefully will do? Thank you, Rob. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I, I suppose what I would come back to first is, is is the problem within the system as prevalent as as is as is shared sometimes across the media as at first bus. And I'm speaking here as first bus rather than as as an op, as a multi operator representative, which I'm within the enhanced partnership plus set up. I, I look after um, the voice of all the operators within this call, but just speaking only as first bus, we are really proud of, of the, the very, very low number of complaints that we receive about our services. And that's improving um, every month. We're, we're seeing improvements there further. So it's extremely low, the number of complaints that we receive. And despite that, bus does get a bit of a bad rep in the press. Um, so what, what we don't always focus in on is all the positive work that we're doing within 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 bus and across the multi-operator um, audience that, that that looks after the bus services in West Yorkshire so what I would say is that it's not all bad it's it's not all all the bad stories that, that you might read there's actually a huge amount of really positive work that's ongoing and and the overarching majority of customers get to where they need to be on time um, with a driver with a smile so and, and we're really really proud of that and we can't neglect that that is the situation what we what we know though is that there are pockets of our communities that need more robust services and we agree that that's the case and in those types of situations we're working with the combined authority to pinpoint those and to to try to work through how together as operators and the combined authority we can get routes established and sustainable um, to and from those areas and what I mean by sustainable is how can we ensure that they keep running um, as as frequently as they need to despite the fact that they may not be used as much as as we would like them to be used to make them profitable. A lot of operators, first included, actually run routes that aren't profitable despite despite not being profitable because we know the criticality of those routes to those communities. And by bringing people on those routes into the more more sort of frequented routes, we keep the bus network moving. Um, so, So 
by ensuring that we can prop up those less sustainable routes, we, we do actually manage to keep the, the network moving as a whole. It's, it's in our interest to, to look after some of those routes that, that aren't as sustainable on their own. And we do that every day. Under the EP plus system, I'm just trying to get a better understanding of how it would work in, in practice. Say, for example, uh, yourself or another operator wants to change a route or maybe change the fares on a route or something like that. How would such a decision be arrived at under the under the EP plus model? What what role would a public body like the, the West Yorkshire Combined Authority have in that uh, in, in terms of or, or compared with your role? Yes, no problem. So let's split that into two. You asked about network and you asked about fares. So taking network first, within an enhanced partnership, we are looking to introduce something called a network management group. In Leicester, there's a there's a brilliant example of this that's playing out, which is delivering significant year-on-year passenger increases. And this is where operators come together to work within the realms of competition law under the principles of a qualifying agreement where it's needed to have good conversations around routes that need to be had ultimately for the authority then to have the final decision on where support may be needed um, across the network to ensure that the the competition can remain, that, that, that the, the legalities around competition are adhered to, but that conversations um, can happen that ultimately the authority has the control of, but that ensure that pockets of demand are well served and that routes can remain sustainable and and therefore be, be be well looked after into the future. So, to come back to the to the question, the EP Plus proposes a, a network management group, uh, which is made up of multi operator audiences. So so that's um, First Buzz, that's the other major operators, the small and medium operators represented by the Confederation of Passenger Transport and our colleagues at the Combined Authority. And the proposal is is to use data to 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 make decisions on on how the network may be better supported ultimately we must work within the provisions and the the legalities of of competition law and so the the combined authority would be the decision maker using that data to to help the operators along the way there on the ticketing side we already have um, the the bones of something that's brilliant um, in terms of the multi-operator setup. So we we operate the West Yorkshire Ticketing Company Limited. The, the, the West Yorkshire Ticketing Company allows operators to come together to make decisions on, on how ticketing can be brought in a simpler fashion to the customers of West Yorkshire. And so, for example, the, the under-19s demographic across West Yorkshire has recently benefited from a huge piece of work that was done within the West Yorkshire Ticketing Company across all operators to bring a multi-operator ticket to the customer. What that means is that our under-19s demographic of passengers can use different operators' buses um, really, really simply. And that's the sort of thing that we would like to increase more of into the future. In both instances with this network management group it is not uh it, it would be a, a sort of joint decision i guess between yourselves and the combined authority it wouldn't be a case of as one person's put it on on twitter uh sort of operators marking their own homework and sort of making the decision just by by themselves that's right that that's that's not what we're suggesting what we're suggesting is um, an authority-led network group um that allows for increased conversation uh, between operators and and the authority to 
to ensure that the network can be can be better protected into the future to ensure that it's sustainable and, and, and critically to ensure that it works for, for everyone that needs to use it in West Yorkshire. Yesterday, I put a little message out on social media asking if anyone had uh, any questions, and a few came in. Some some of them are relatively relatively challenging. Uh, I'll, I'll put I'll put a few of them to you now, if that's okay, Kaylee. Um, one question is how how we can trust how passengers can trust bus operators, not just to raise uh, fares if you still have control of them. And I think that the example cited is when the two pound cap was imposed on single fares. Uh, and I think there were some examples of fares that were cheaper than that, like £1.40 going up to £2. So the suspicion in some quarters is that if you were allow- if operators were allowed to continue having control over fares, they would uh, they would just just go up. Can you give any assurances on on that point? And um, what I can reassure listeners about is that as a general point, operators have held back on increasing fares. Um, and that's recognising the cost of living crisis that, that we're all trying to get by within. Um, what we can also reassure listeners with is that the, the multi-operator approach that's suggested will enable the commitments that, that we've made on the simplification of fares, which which we've already provided examples of, the, the one that I gave just recently on, on the under 19s demographic. What we what we can assure listeners is that the commitment that we've we've made there, which we've already demonstrated can be delivered, is is there to there's there's more of that to come. So what we'd like to move towards is is a is a similar system to how buses are paid for um within within London, for example. And so listeners that are familiar with with bus travel in London, where where a customer can hop on and hop off buses with with a capped fare and that 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 travel is, is is very seamless between different routes, between different operators. That's where we're hoping to get to. We actually have the technology ready for that. Um, it's enabled across the West Yorkshire operator buses um, and, and we're standing in line ready to, to switch that on. And what we commit to is that that will be switched on by the end of 2024 within an enhanced partnership plus scenario. So what needs to happen? Uh, you're, you're ready to switch it on. What what needs to happen for it to go, for it to actually happen so there's there's a project ongoing at the moment in in the midlands um which is 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 being called project coral people more familiar perhaps with with the bus industry than 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 some of our other listeners on this call may may already be aware of project coral so so there's 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 a there's a queue i suppose of (laughs) of um of regions and what we've said within west yorkshire is that we we will be lobbying much harder to 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 get that switch on of of technology um that's been brought to the west midlands and being trialed there um, and as I've mentioned, the investment actually from operators has, has already been made. So, so we stand ready to to ensure that the the capping system across across operators is in place by the end of 2024. Another question is: uh, Is it the case that many of the benefits that uh, you argue Enhanced Partnership Plus will bring will only happen if operators get more public subsidy? Uh, and if that is the case, why should the public have to take extra? financial uh, financial risk I, I did see that question come across Robin and it, it confused me a little bit if, I, if I'm honest I don't know where the assumption has come from and and, and thankfully the person that, that asked that question of you said uh, apparently there's an additional subsidy um, but but I'd, I'd really love to have a conversation uh, about that in more detail because I can provide reassurance that the EP plus proposal does not require additional public subsidy for it to be delivered um, 
actually there, there there is potentially more risk regarding subsidy in in the in the franchising proposal um but what i want to focus on today is is the enhanced partnership plus um and i can absolutely um categorically um state that that does not require additional public subsidy to deliver Okay, well, that's that's nice and clear. And um, a question that came in from a, a group called the Association of British Commuters, uh, which is, will EP Plus stand in the way of integrated planning and fare policies uh, due to competition competition law? Is that is that a possible concern? So we've touched earlier in in our conversation on competition slightly within the network management group. Um, conversation we had and and I'll come back to Leicester. Leicester is is a brilliant example of where decisions have been taken um, under the principles of a qualifying agreement on coordinated services um, which do not reach competition law but that still enable customer choice across operators to remain in place. So this is where agreements on coordinated services across parallel corridors um, have been reached Um, and, and that is, is exactly what the network management group would rely upon to ensure that decisions can be taken similar to those that would be taken in a franchising scenario, but without breaching the competition law that would remain in place um, under a, a non-franchising scenario. Um, Competition is actually really, really positive for the customer. So it leads to innovation. It leads ultimately to improved services. What we've got to be careful of is is over providing uh, within pockets of the community, uh, within certain corridors. And, and of course, that's not really within anybody's interest because that's unsustainable for the network. And it means other pockets of the community are, are underserved. So that's something that all operators uh, always keep their eyes on because ultimately it's in their interest to do so. But what I would say is that removing competition from from an environment generally isn't um, a great thing for the customer in the end, uh, because the the healthy competition that exists is is really leading to innovation in in the end. And the final question that's come in, this is from the uh, Better Buses for West Yorkshire group, who I think it's probably fair to say are a strong supporter of franchising, which is why, why go down this route of EP plus when other European nations are largely, uh, they largely have their buses under public control in the way that Greater Greater Manchester has? So that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, I would go down the route of saying, why would you pursue an option for franchising if there's another option that may constitute more value for money and that can be delivered quicker? So I don't, I don't think this is, is a, it's such a binary um conversation around is it how we work today or is it franchising as other European entities have pursued or you know as is the case in London for me this is about how can we deliver the the bus reform objectives at value for money and um at speed and rather than there being a this is how we work today conversation versus this is how we may work in the future under franchising what the enhanced partnership plus looks to do is say is there somewhere in between? Is there something that manages to meet the bus reform objectives of the mayor? We agree with the mayor that reform is needed, but that constitutes value for money and that enables speed within the delivery. Um, so, so rather than it be a off the shelf, let's do what somebody else has done. This is a, a radical question mark over 
the the two the two options that perhaps seem to exist within other conversation um and what we're saying is as the bus operators of west yorkshire is let's consider a third option let's do something that is is different that ultimately does not require the public funding to deliver um as as franchising may well need um but in doing so let's 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 put that money somewhere else and let's invest in the in the bus network in this in, in a different way. Just to explain to uh, listeners, I think there's a consultation ongoing at the moment, which I think Tracy Braben's office is contractually obliged to do as part of the sort of uh, process of reforming bus services. And I think what yourself and the other op- operators would like is for people to consider uh, EP Plus as part of that consultation process there's a there's a, a website isn't there where people can find out more about ep plus what what's the what's the the, the what, how could people find that that's right um so i would encourage you to visit um www.thebestforwestyorkshire.co.uk um and we do really want uh, listeners to have their say whatever their views on the consultation um on bus reform it's really important that that people have their say on this topic um and that they engage with the consultation and with the consultation materials that have been published because ultimately this this network is there to serve the customers of west yorkshire it's the customers of west yorkshire that need to have their voice heard kaylee ingham's from first bus in west yorkshire thank you so much thank you no problem Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and it's produced by Daniel J. McCoughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other laudable podcasts, See you next week. Bye-bye.